Welcome to A Great Big City News, episode 37. Today, buses get blocked and new photos of Ground Zero. Hi, I'm Trace Gilton, founder of A Great Big City. It's been a while since we checked in with the city's measles outbreak. In the latest city data, just six new cases were registered in July, with none so far in August. The number of new cases have steadily declined since the high point in April, when there were 183 new cases in one month. As the disease spreads through communities, it naturally reaches a maximum number of infections as the vast majority of people are vaccinated against the disease, and the city's efforts to distribute vaccinations ensured that the disease didn't spread any further. Of the 642 total cases within the city, 88% were either unvaccinated or had an unknown vaccination status. The outbreak was mainly contained within a few Brooklyn neighborhoods, with 460 cases in Williamsburg, 123 in Borough Park, and 17 in Sunset Park. While the outbreak is coming to an end, it's important to make sure newborn children receive their vaccinations on schedule, as nearly all the infections were in children under 18 years old. Measles is a highly contagious disease that is spread through the air as sick individuals cough or sneeze. The measles vaccination is included in MMR shots, standing for measles, mumps, and rubella, that contain a specially weakened form of the virus that trains the body's immune system on how to defend against that virus in the future. For information on where to obtain a measles vaccination, call 311 or view information from the Department of Health at nyc.gov doh. The M14 bus along 14th Street recently won the Distinguished Award for the city's slowest bus line, averaging just 4.3 miles per hour, and it won't be getting a boost anytime soon if the surrounding neighborhoods have their way. 14th Street was originally scheduled to convert to a traffic-restricted busway on July 1st during the L-Train shutdown, but then the L-Train plans were modified to keep the subway open, and community groups stepped in to take legal action against the Department of Transportation's plan. A judge agreed to stop the busway from going into effect until the DOT provided more information, which they did, and it appeared that the buses would be allowed to roam free until another last-minute legal ruling ensured 14th Street would stay open to cars. The second attempt at opening the busway was scheduled to begin on Monday, August 12th, when the cars and taxi traffic would be restricted and buses given priority to increase transit speeds. But downtown community groups submitted a petition halting the busway in July and then renewed their complaints on August 9th, claiming the Department of Transportation hadn't done sufficient studies into the impact that removing traffic from 14th Street would have on the surrounding area. 14th Street was scheduled to become a truck and transit priority area between 3rd and 9th Avenues from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., with all other vehicles able to enter the street only for one block to make a local trip and must exit immediately to keep the street clear for the M14A and D buses, one of the most heavily used bus lines in the city. Left turns would be banned to keep traffic from backing up in front of the buses, and automated traffic cameras would be used to monitor vehicles. The DOT estimates that the changes would increase the speeds of buses by 30%, and the plan was expected to run for 18 months. There's a mystery that needs to be solved. This week, archivists released a collection of photos taken after the September 11th attacks, but the person who took the photos remains unknown. 
After working to restore the CD-ROMs that were found in an estate sale, the 2,389 digital photos have now been archived and uploaded to Flickr, thanks to Dr. Jonathan Burgess and Jason Scott of TextFiles.com. The collection of photos shows the aftermath of the collapse of the Twin Towers, and they were likely taken by a construction worker or someone with consistent access to the site during the cleanup effort. Workers are shown operating machinery to move large pieces of mangled steel during night and day, and other times are shown taking rest and posing for the camera, sometimes removing their protective breathing masks. Many of the photos are taken from above, so the person would have also had access to the rooftops of buildings that look down on the surrounding area, showing things like the broken atrium of the Winter Garden at the World Financial Center. Photos from ground level show an overall view of the ground zero area from a time when pieces of the exterior wall of the Trade Center towers were still standing many stories tall amid piles of rubble. There was another type of unique and impactful series of photos in the collection that were taken from inside buildings that were still standing but had been greatly damaged. Otherwise, normal offices are shifted and crushed, with cracks showing through the walls and windows blown out. These photos are a striking look into the history of the day-to-day operations that took place shortly after the September 11th attacks, and the knowledgeable work of archivists saved a vital bit of documentation from deteriorating and disappearing forever. Forty-nine years ago, on August 5th, 1970, a fire at one New York plaza kills two people and injures 35. The fire drew attention to the hazards introduced by new glass-and-steel skyscraper construction techniques and heat-sensitive elevator call buttons, which malfunctioned in the heat of the fire. The new 50-story skyscraper had been completed just one year earlier at the tip of Manhattan and housed financial businesses with Chase Manhattan Bank as a main tenant. The fire broke out just before 6 p.m. on the 33rd floor in a closet housing telephone equipment and spread across the 33rd and 34th floors. The tragedy came when an elevator carrying two security guards and a telephone technician mistakenly opened on the floor where the fire was raging because the increased heat triggered the heat-sensitive elevator call button, which was designed to detect body heat when someone placed their finger on the button, but instead called the elevator to that floor when the heat of the surrounding air reached the same temperature. The deadly fire advanced fire safety by drawing attention to the danger of heat-sensitive elevator buttons and the inadequate fireproofing insulation that had been applied to steel beams. The new glass and steel construction style also held in heat, and the building did not have a sprinkler system, causing dangerous and difficult conditions for firefighters trying to bring the fire under control. During the fire at one New York plaza, The fire burned hot enough to warp and twist the steel beams, with only concrete slabs left holding the floors from collapsing. The spray-on insulation technique would again come under scrutiny 31 years later, when the World Trade Center towers, which were built during the same time period, also suffered from inadequate spray-on fireproofing that had flaked off the steel or been knocked away by the impact, exposing the bare steel to the full heat of the fire. One New York plaza would also suffer a steam turbine explosion in the basement of the building one month before the September 11th attacks, and was one of many large buildings damaged due to flooding during Hurricane Sandy in October 2012. Ten years ago, on August 8, 2009, 
A small plane collides with a sightseeing helicopter over the Hudson River, killing all nine people involved. The collision occurred at approximately 1,100 feet above the Hudson, near 14th Street, just before noon, and was caused by a series of compounding events, most serious of which is the freedom to fly the Hudson River Corridor by sight and using personal judgment to avoid collisions. The small plane had been in contact with air traffic controllers at Teterboro Airport during the beginning of the flight, then headed south following the Hudson River past Manhattan. In later recordings of radio traffic, the pilot was heard to have switched to an incorrect radio frequency and was not in contact with Newark air traffic control, which also meant he was unreachable to warn of an impending collision. Just before noon, and in clear weather, the pilot of the small plane crashed into the rotors of a sightseeing helicopter, operated by Liberty Helicopters, that had recently lifted off from the 34th Street helipad. Both aircraft dropped into the water, killing the three family members aboard the plane, and the pilot and two groups of tourists aboard the helicopter. This collision, as well as a small plane that was crashed into an apartment building in 2006, are often cited by those seeking greater restrictions on the visual flight rules above the Hudson and East Rivers, where numerous aircraft are allowed to fly unsupervised around the largest city in the country, occasionally crashing into the water, into buildings, or into each other. Last week, I covered flight attendant Stephen Slater's dramatic exit from a JetBlue flight at JFK Airport, where he pulled the emergency evacuation slide. But this week, one day before the actual nine-year anniversary of his story, TMZ reported that Stephen Slater has been reported missing after recently moving to Tijuana in Mexico and losing contact with friends and family for several days. Slater had recently been working at SeaWorld in San Diego, about 25 miles north of Tijuana, and told a friend that he had recently moved across the border to save money. No one has heard from him since a Facebook post on August 4th when he said he was going to visit the Monumental Arch landmark in a tourist area of Tijuana. Slater is an adult and under no obligation to contact his family, and hopefully he is only taking some time to be alone. But if he does cross the border back into the United States, law enforcement will receive a notification and check on him to ensure he is safe. Fifteen years ago on August 12, 2004, security guard and elevator operator Carl de Klerk is killed by an elevator malfunction. A freight elevator at 5 Times Square malfunctioned when the elevator's braking system failed and sent the elevator car rocketing upwards into the top of the elevator shaft. As the freight elevator passed a passenger elevator at the 19th floor, both elevator cars shook, temporarily trapping the passengers in the other elevator car, but the freight elevator was then pulled upward. The impact shook the building, also known as the Ernst & Young headquarters, and destroyed the elevator car, instantly killing Carl de Klerk. Officials speculated that it was a problem with the elevator counterweight, which would have dropped to the ground, pulling the elevator car upwards and overcoming the weaker braking system designed to hold the car in place. Carl de Klerk was 63 years old and lived in Richmond Hill in Queens. He woke up at 5 a.m. to travel into Manhattan every day and work as a security guard and elevator operator. Seventy-four years ago, on August 14, 1945, VJ Day celebration takes place in Times Square after Japan surrenders in World War II. Victory over Japan Day was made famous by a photograph published in Life magazine 
of a sailor kissing a woman in a white dress. When recounting the events that led to the famous scene, photographer Alfred Eisenstecht said the sailor had been running up to multiple strangers in the crowd and kissing them all, and confirmed that the photo was not a couple reuniting after the war, but rather a random street assault. In a later interview, Greta Zimmer Friedman was revealed as the woman in the photo and said that she did not see the sailor approaching, and he just came over and grabbed her. Japan's surrender came six days after the United States dropped two atomic weapons on the civilian cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing somewhere between 129,000 and 226,000 Japanese citizens, with an unknown number dying later from the effects of radiation sickness and injuries sustained in the explosions. A document signing ceremony on September 2, 1945 would formally end World War II. If you're ordering takeout food or picking something up from a street vendor, keep an eye out for styrofoam containers. The city's new styrofoam ban went into effect on January 1st, but businesses had a six-month grace period to adjust, and now the numbers are in for the first full month of enforcement. In the first month, the city delivered 57 styrofoam violations, which each carry a $250 fine. Styrofoam cups and containers are notoriously difficult to recycle and can't be accepted for recycling at all once they have been used for food, which leaves a permanent piece of trash sitting in a landfill for hundreds of years. To report a business using styrofoam products, call 311 with the business name, address, and type of product being used. A great big city has been running a 24-hour news feed since 2010. But the AGBC News Podcast is just getting started and we need your support. A Great Big City is built on a dedication to explaining what is happening and how it fits into the larger history of New York, which means thoroughly researching every topic and avoiding clickbait headlines to provide a straightforward, honest, and factual explanation of the news. Individuals can make a monthly or one-time contribution at agreatbigcity.com support and local businesses can have a lasting impact by supporting local news while promoting their products or services directly to interested customers listening to the podcast. Visit agreatbigcity.com slash advertising to view rates and learn more. A Great Big City is more than just a news website. Our fireworks page monitors the city's announcements of upcoming fireworks, lists them on our site, and automatically sends out a notification just before the fireworks are set to begin so that you can watch the show or prepare your pet for the upcoming sounds of explosions. Visit agreatbigcity.com slash fireworks to see the full calendar and follow A Great Big City on social media to receive the alerts. Park of the Day. Great Kills Park in Staten Island. The Great Kills beaches along Staten Island's east coast are perfect for summer recreation or watching wildlife. The city park portion is near Oakwood in New Dorp Beach, whereas the National Park, also named Great Kills, is to the south at Bay Terrace. Watch your step in the National Park portion because nearly half of the park land is closed and being tested for radioactivity. In Parks events, coming up on Wednesday, August 14th, the Summer Sports Experience brings an array of sports activities to youngsters at the Williamsbridge Oval in the Bronx. The program is geared toward children aged 6 to 13, and the Parks Department will be on hand from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. to show kids how to use the wide variety of sports fields at Williamsbridge Oval. 
And now let's see what our robot friend will be experiencing this week on the concert calendar. Here's the AGBC concert calendar for the upcoming week. Miraji is playing in the Gucci Museum on Sunday, August 11th. Iron Age, Waste Management, Candy, New Lowe's, and Born Center are playing St. Vitus Bar on Sunday, August 11th. Papa Roach, Asking Alexandria, and Bad Wolves are playing the rooftop at Pier 17 on Sunday, August 11th. David Crosby and Anna Eastmichel are playing the Domrush Park Ben Shell on Sunday, August 11th. Neurosis, Bell Witch, and Deaf Kids are playing Brooklyn Steel on Sunday, August 11th. Self-Defense Family and Husbandry are playing St. Vitus Bar on Sunday, August 11th. She Wants Revenge is playing elsewhere on Monday, August 12th. Barry Manilow is playing Lund Fontana Theatre in Midtown on Tuesday, August 13th at 7 p.m. Damn Jackals, Johnny Couch, Traeger, and Trash TV are playing Our Wicked Lady on Wednesday, August 14th. The Mystery Lights are playing Berlin on Wednesday, August 14th. Kiss is playing the Prudential Center on Wednesday, August 14th at 7 p.m. Mutual Benefit is playing Mercury Lounge on Thursday, August 15th. The Backstreet Boys are playing Barclays Center on Thursday, August 15th at 8 p.m. John Fogarty is playing Radio City Music Hall on Thursday, August 15th at 8 p.m. Joyce Manor and Saves the Day are playing Webster Hall on Friday, August 16th. Back, Cage the Elephant. Sunflower Bean, and Spoon are playing Forest Hills Stadium on Saturday, August 17th. X-Hex and Frankie and the Witch Fingers are playing the Industry City Courtyard on Saturday, August 17th. Bardo Pond and Sunburned Hand of the Man are playing the Mercury Lounge on Saturday, August 17th. The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and Bedouin Sound Clash are playing Webster Hall on Wednesday, August 21st. And Tame Impala is playing Madison Square Garden on Wednesday, August 21st and Thursday, August 22nd. Thanks for listening. Find more fun things to do at agreatbigcity.com slash events. Here's something you may not have known about New York. Much like our fair city, Manhattan, Kansas has a nickname of the Little Apple. The extreme highs and lows for this week in weather history, a record high of 103 degrees on August 9th, 2001, and a record low of 45 degrees on August 8th, 1903. Weather for the week ahead, light rain on Tuesday and Wednesday of next week with daily highs in the 80s, and high UV index ratings when the skies are clear. Thanks for listening to A Great Big City News. Follow along 24 hours a day on social media at A Great Big City or email contact at A Great Big City with any news, feedback, or topic suggestions. Subscribe to A Great Big City News wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Overcast.fm, or listen to each episode on the podcast pages at agreatbigcity.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. And visit our podcast site to see show notes and extra links for each episode. Our intro and outro music is Start the Day by Lee Rosphere, and the concert calendar music is from jukedeck.com. Thanks for being part of a great big city.